Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Numbers chapter number 23. And of course, on Sundays, we've been going through a chapter-by-chapter series through the book of Numbers. We've called it Wilderness Wanderings, and we've been wandering in the wilderness with the children of Israel, looking at these famous stories of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And within our big series of the book of Numbers, the last week, we've been in this little mini-series inside of the book of Numbers, dealing with this character, Balaam. And Balaam is a prophet, and he's, he's honestly one of the most intriguing and somewhat confusing characters uh, in the Bible. I preached two sermons about Balaam last Sunday from Numbers uh, 22, and I'll just quickly catch you up. I won't obviously be able to develop everything we talked about last week, but what we learned last week was that, number one, Balaam was a false prophet. The Bible is clear about that. Uh, there's a lot said about Balaam, especially in the New Testament. And the Bible is clear about the fact that he's a false prophet, and he was also a reprobate. He was not saved. When he died, he went to hell. He was a wicked false prophet. And if you remember the story, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, is fearful of the children of Israel who are getting closer to entering into the promised land, and he's seen the children of Israel be victorious against several kings, and Balak has hired Balaam, a false prophet, to curse the children of Israel. And there's all sorts of drama that uh, ensued as a result of that, Balaam trying to get to Balak, and of course there was a donkey involved and all those things. We talked about that last week. In chapter 23, we are here where Balaam and Balak have now came together, and they're getting ready to uh, do these curses upon the children of Israel. And to be honest with you, because Balaam is a little bit of a confusing character, uh, this, this is, there's a lot to cover in these, in these verses. And uh, this morning is going to be very much a Bible study. I hope that's okay. Uh, and and we're going we're gonna to dissect these verses together. And what I'm going to do is we're going to look at this chapter under two different headings. I think we did this last week as well, uh, and maybe this will help you. We're going to spend the first part of the sermon in the explanation. I'm going to give you an explanation of what are referred to as the first two oracles of Balaam. In chapter 23, there are four different times that Balaam prophesies upon the children of Israel. Two of them are found in chapter 23. Two of them are found in chapter 24. Lord willing, we're going to cover all of chapter 23 this morning, and then we're going to finish our little study on Balaam tonight in chapter number 24. Uh, we're going to begin by just giving you an explanation of the first two oracles. For those of you taking notes, and I do encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place we write down some notes. And then we're going to, in the second part of the sermon, or towards the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you some application from the two oracles. So explanation of the first two oracles and applications from the first two oracles. So let's just jump right into it. I want you to notice that each one of these oracles, each one of these blessings that were actually meant to be curses, but they end up being blessings, these prophecies of Balaam, they all have a little bit of a setup, and we see the setup here in verses 1 through 6 of Numbers 23. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says this, And Balaam, this is the false prophet, said unto Balak, this is the bad king, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered on every altar a bullock and a ram. And Balaam said unto Balak, Stand by the burnt offering, and I will go. I want you to notice this word here in our King James Bible, peradventure. The word peradventure is an older word. We don't use it as much today. It simply means perhaps. And what he's saying here is he says, I will go. Peradventure, the Lord will come to meet uh, will come to meet me. And I want you to notice that what he's saying is, he says, let's do all these, all, the, the seven altars, seven oxen, seven rams, all these sacrifices to be offered. And then he says, perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And I want you to notice that Balaam does not for sure believe here or know, have confidence in the fact that the Lord is going to meet with him. He says, perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. And whatsoever he showeth me, I will tell thee. And he went to an high place. Now, and again, there's so much to cover. I, I can't go through everything, but let me just say this. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know this, especially the Old Testament, that high places are bad places. High places is where uh, sacrifices were done to false idols. And, and this is where they're at. They're in a high place. There's all these little hints throughout the story that these are not good people doing a good thing. Notice verse 4. And God met Balaam. And he, Balaam, said unto him, God, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. 
and said, Return unto Balak, and thus thou shalt speak. And he, Balaam, returned unto him, Balak, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab. Now let me just say this, a uh, real quick note here, because again, one of the reasons that the story can be confusing at times is because there's this relationship between God and Balaam. In verse 4, we're told that God met Balaam. In verse 5, we're told, and the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. And last week, I mentioned that this week, I would be explaining what I believe is going on here in the story uh, regarding God's relationship with Balaam, why I believe that God speaks to Balaam and God speaks through Balaam, because let's be clear, what Balaam says in these four oracles is correct, is true, is the Word of God, and is even inspired by God. However, Balaam is a bad guy. He's a false prophet, and he's a reprobate. So I'm going to explain what it is that's happening here and why God is speaking to Balaam and through Balaam. However, let me just say this. I'm going to cover that in tonight's sermon, all right? So we're going to cover that from chapter 24 because it honestly just makes more sense to cover it from chapter 24 once we get to the end of the story than to do it from chapter 23. So I guess some of you are just going to have to come back, all right? Come back for the evening service. And if you find Balaam a difficult character to understand, if you find him confusing or intriguing, which many people do, then I, I, I think it'll make sense to you when you see it tonight. Uh, and we will cover it tonight for sure, but it just makes more more sense to cover it at the end of the story from chapter 24. Uh, so let me just give you that little commercial for the evening service tonight. Now there we have in verses 1 through 6 the setup for this first oracle. And then we have the first oracle in chapters 7 through 12. Now the reason that these are referred to as oracles, the word oracle is a biblical word. It's not in this passage. But the reason it's referred to as oracles is because an oracle in the Bible is simply just the word of God. It's the, the things that God said. And Balaam is speaking the word of God in these prophecies, in these blessings, in these oracles. Notice verse number 7, Numbers 23, verse 7. And he, Balaam, the Bible says, took up his parable. Now I want you to notice the word parable there. What we're going to see is Balaam's first, whatever you want to call it, blessing, oracle, uh, prophecy, preaching, sermon. He's going to give a speech. And he's going to do this. Now remember, he's been hired to curse the children of Israel. He's been hired to stand on a high place looking down upon the congregation of the children of Israel and to pronounce a curse upon them so that Balak would be victorious over them in battle. And what he's going to do is the opposite. Instead of giving a curse, he's going to give a blessing. He's been hired to give a curse. He wants to give a curse because he wants to get paid. But instead, he gives this uh, blessing. But the Bible here in verse number 7, I want you to notice, calls it a parable. And he took up his parable. And the reason that it's referred to here as a parable is because the blessing he gives or the prophecy or the preaching or the sermon or whatever you want to call it is given in poetic form. And what Balaam does is he gives poetry as uh, a sermon or as a sermonette here uh, from the Word of God. So it's referred to here as a parable. And I want you to notice, it says here, And said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying. Now, after the word saying is when, begin, when, this, when this oracle or this poetry or this parable uh, begins. Now, let me just say something about Hebrew poetry and poetry you find in the Old Testament. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Old Testament Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, and it has no special meters in the way that uh, the type of poetry that you and I are used to seeing has. So the way that you can tell poetry in the Bible is because of a series of parallelisms that are used. They are couplets that are given uh, through these prophecies where you'll see that there's these statements that are made in parallel fashion. There are these forms, these, these parallel couplets that are given, and you may miss them when you first read, 
the Bible, but once you see it, then it's hard to not see it. And I want you to notice it here in verse number 7, Numbers 23, verse 7. And he took up his parable and said, Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, and here's where the parable begins, the poetry begins, the oracle begins. Notice the couplets and the parallelism. Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. Notice how both statements begin with the word come. They both have a negative curse, defy, and they both uh, identify the congregation of Israel, Jacob and Israel, both the same individual by two different names who, are the descent, who was the one that the children of Israel descended from. So we see come, curse me, Jacob, come, defy Israel. Notice the next couplet, verse number eight. This is Balaam speaking. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defiled? Notice uh, that there's parallelism and there's couplets. There's a reinstatement of the same things. Come, curse me, Jacob. Come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? Look at verse 9. For from the tops of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Notice there's parallelism and there's restatements. He says, I see them from the tops of the rocks, I behold him from the hills. From the tops of the rocks I see him, from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. They'll dwell alone and they'll not be reckoned. Look at verse 10. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Reinstatements saying these people can't be counted. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? And let me just say this. What he's saying here, this is coming from the Lord. And of course, keep in mind that he was hired to curse the people. And he's saying in this parable, the king of Moab hired me and he said, come curse me, Jacob, come defy Israel. And then he says, how shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defiled? From the tops of the rocks I see him, from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? And here there's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis 32, 12. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember the Abrahamic covenant that God, the promise that God made to Abraham, he said that he would make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And here Balaam is saying, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Notice uh, the last part of verse 10. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. So notice there's a reinstatement. He says, I want to die the death of the righteous and I, and I want my last end to be like his. And this is Balaam making this request. Let me just say this, by the way, God does not answer this prayer for Balaam. Because in this oracle, Balaam asks, let me die the death of the righteous, let my last end be like his. But this is not something that comes to pass. In fact, just real quickly, keep your place there in Numbers 23, and go with me to Numbers chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31, just real quickly, and look at verse number 8. Balaam says, let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. In Numbers 31, in verse number 8, we actually see how Balaam dies. And I want you to notice that he does not die the death of the righteous. He does not die a peaceful, blessed death. Numbers 31, verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. And they, this is the children of Israel, slew the king of Midian. We're fast-forwarding in the story. Numbers 31, the children of Israel have gone to battle against the Midianites. They killed the king of Midian. Beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian. Midian, look at the last part of verse number 8. Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. I want you to notice that the children of Israel in Numbers 31 actually go, when they battle the Midianites, they find Balaam among the Midianites and they slew him with the sword. They kill him. So this is just another proof that this was a bad guy, this was a bad man. But it's interesting to me that he makes this request, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. And God's response to that is, no, you're going to die and you're going to be slain with the sword. Look at verse number 11, Numbers, uh, excuse me, Numbers 23. Go back to Numbers 23 and verse number 11. Numbers 23 and verse 11, the Bible says this, And Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies. So now the, the parable is done. The, the, the curse that was supposed to be done upon the children of Israel ended up being a blessing, right? 
Balaam says, come curse me, Jacob. Come defy me, Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defiled? For from the tops of the rocks I see him. From the hills I behold him. The people shall dwell alone, shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous. Let my last end be like his. And you notice that there's this parallelism and these couplets. And by the way, when, when, once you see it, it's hard to not see. For example, the book of Psalms is a book of songs, music, that is uh, Hebrew poetry, and, and think about the very first psalm, Psalm 1. Once you see the poetry, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll begin to identify. Psalm 1 and verse 1 says this, Blessed is the man that, notice the parallelism, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That's how Hebrew poetry works. There's these reinstatements, this parallelism that's given, and that's how we can identify that Balaam gets up to curse the people, and then the Bible says that God puts a word in his mouth, and not only does he bless the people, he blesses them in a poetic fashion, in a parable-type way. Notice the response from Balak, Numbers 23, verse 11. And Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. And he answered and said, Must I not take heed? So this is Balaam speaking to Balak. He said, Must not I take heed? The word heed means to pay attention. To speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth. So I want you to notice that we have the first oracle, and it doesn't go well. Balaam doesn't give a curse. He gives a blessing. Balak is upset about that. So what happens? Notice the second setup in verses 13 through 17. Look at verse 13. And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place, from whence thou mayest see them. Thou shalt see but the utmost part of them, and shalt not see them all, and curse me them from thence. So I want you to notice that now Balak, he says, okay, well, I, I wanted you to curse the people, and you, don't, you didn't curse them, you blessed them. But he said, let's try this again. He said, he said let's try this from a different location. He says, I pray thee, come, I pray thee with me unto another place. He said, let's, let's go somewhere else. From whence, the word whence means uh, place or source, from whence thou mayest see them, he says that thou shalt but the utmost part of them. The word utmost means the, the furthest part or the, 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 the most uh, furthest edge of them. He says, and shalt not see them all. So Balak is saying, maybe you couldn't curse all of them. But maybe from a different location, you can curse some of them. He said, let's just try this in a different way. He says, and curse me them, last part of verse 13, from thence. Now, where does Balak get this idea, or why does he think it would make a difference that they would move locations and maybe look at them from a different uh, location? Well, let's run a verse real quickly. Keep your place there, Numbers. Go to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 20. This might come from an idea in the ancient world that the gods, and when I say gods, I'm saying plural because I'm talking about lowercase g gods, idols, false gods, not true gods. The, ancient, the people of the ancient world often had this idea that the gods were the gods of regional locations. So they were more powerful in certain places and less powerful in other places. And of course, we know that this is not true of the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is the God of the whole world. He's the true God. He's Jehovah God. He's the creator of the entire universe. But the ancient people often had this idea when they worshiped the goddess this or the god that, they didn't think that that was the god of the entire world. It was just the god of their town, the god of their city, the god of their region, the god of their location. So the fact that Balak is asking Balaam to move it's like, like trying to get, you know, uh, reception on your cell phone. Uh, he, he's trying to maybe, maybe you didn't get a lot of reception here, but maybe we go over here and maybe if we look at him in a certain way, maybe it'll work out there better. That's the idea. Look at 1 Kings just to show that to you in the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 23. 1 Kings 20, 23, the Bible says this, And the servant of the kings of Syria, these are obviously heathen people, said unto him, they're, they're, they're fighting against the children of Israel, and they've lost. And here's what they said. The heathen, this was their reasoning. Their 
gods, lowercase g, plural, gods, are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. The word plain means like a prairie, like a large, flat area. And surely we shall be stronger than they. So I'm just showing that to you to show you that they had this idea that, well, maybe their God is the God of the hills, but I don't think he's the God of the plains. So we lost the battle in the hills, but let's fight them in the plains. That's the idea. Go back to Numbers 23. I believe where Balak is saying, come, I pray thee with me unto another place from whence thou mayest see them. Thou shalt not see, but the utmost part of them. You're just going to see the extreme part of them, the, the furthest away part of them, and shalt not see them all, and curse me them from then. So he says, let's try it again, somewhere else, from a different location, looking at it from a different angle. Look at verse 14, Numbers 23, 14. And he brought him into the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah. So he takes him to another mountaintop, and I'll just, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'll just, if you want this for your notes, Pisgah, by the way, is actually where Moses will go to die later on. That has nothing to do with this story, but it's just interesting to note. And build seven altars, and offer a bullock and a ram on every altar, verse 15. And he said unto Balak, Stand here by the burnt offering, while I meet the Lord yonder. And the Lord met Balaam, notice the words again, and put a word in his mouth. And said, Go again unto Balak, and say thus. And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, What hath the Lord spoken? Notice verse 18. And he took up his parable. So again, we're going to see another parable, another poetry, another oracle given by God through Balaam. Notice it here in verse 18. And he took up his parable and said, so in verses 18 through 24, we have the second oracle. Notice again, just the, the couplets, the parallelism, the way that the poetry works. Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Now, why don't you notice that not only is this beautiful poetry, not only is this beautiful wording from the word of God, but it's also the blessing itself is a rebuke upon Balaam and Balak. Balaam is there to curse the people. So the first oracle says, how shall I curse whom the Lord did not curse? How shall I defy whom the Lord did not defy? Right? They're there to, to curse the people and then God gives a blessing. So then they say, well, let's try it again from a different place. Let's try it again from a different angle. Let's try it again from a different location. So now the oracle says this. This is Balaam now trying to change the mind of God, and through the Holy Spirit, he speaks these words. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He hath said, and he shall not do it. Or have he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God is making Balaam say, I'm not changing my mind. I mean, I just think that's interesting. They're trying to get God to do these things, and God says, no. In fact, here's what I want you to say. God is not a man that he should lie. And by the way, praise God for that. We can, we can uh, always trust in the promises of God. Neither the son of man that he should repent. The word repent means to change your mind. He's saying, look, God's not a man that he doesn't need to change his mind. He doesn't need to change his mind about the situation. It doesn't matter if you do it from a different location and look at it from a different angle. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He hath said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Look at verse 23. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Balaam is trying to curse. Imagine, he's up there because he, he wants to get paid, right? We've learned that he's greedy and he's covetous. He wants to get paid to curse the people. He gets up there. He says, all right, I'm going to curse these people. And what comes out of his mouth is, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. I have received commandment to bless, and he had blessed, and I cannot reverse it. I mean, God is just messing with Balaam and Balak at this time. Look at this point. Look at verse 21. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. This is Balaam speaking, the oracle of God. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Surely, 
This is, I think this is interesting, verse 23. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. Now, why, why is that interesting? Here's why that's interesting. is because if you remember, in fact, let's just look at it real quick. Go to Joshua chapter 13. You're there in Numbers. You go past Deuteronomy into the book of Joshua. If you remember, Balaam is a soothsayer. He's into witchcraft. Joshua 13, 22. Look at what the Bible says. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 13, verse 22. Balaam, Joshua 13, 22. Also the son of Beor. Because remember, Balaam is brought up a lot throughout the Bible. He's given a lot of real estate. So here's another random time he's brought up. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the soothsayer. What's a soothsayer? It's, it's, it's like a palm reader. It's like someone that looks into a crystal ball. It's a person who tries to predict the future using magic or dark magic or the occult. That's what a soothsayer is. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the soothsayer, notice again, did the children of Israel slay with the sword among them that were slain by them. So he didn't die the death of the righteous. The Bible tells us that Balaam is a soothsayer. But not only that, go back to Numbers. But it, we're, we're in Numbers 23. We're going to be in Numbers 24 tonight. But just go to Numbers 24 just real quickly and look at verse number 1 because I want you to see something. The Bible gives us some insight in Numbers 24 about what's going on in this episode with Balaam. And what the Bible tells us in Numbers 24 and verse 1 is that Balaam is doing everything in his power to try to constrain God, to try to get God to allow this curse to go forward and to give a curse unto the people. We've already seen one tactic. They went to the high places where they sacrificed unto idols. But remember, they built seven altars and they sacrificed oxen. They made these sacrifices unto God. And by the way, those are the same type of typical sacrifices that the children of Israel would make to, to God. Those were fine sacrifices, not in a good place, but those were sacrifices they did to God. In Numbers 24 and verse 1, the Bible says this, And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times, notice these words, to seek for enchantments. What's an enchantment? It's an object used in casting spells or performing witchcraft. It'd be like a voodoo doctor with a voodoo doll trying to curse the doll. That would be the enchantment. And the Bible here tells us that not only was Balaam up there on those high, uh, on those high hills and the high places uh, performing sacrifices of the Lord, he was also using enchantments to try to bring a curse upon the people. So get this idea. Balaam is up there, the soothsayer, with his enchantments, he does his little hocus-pocus. I don't know what he does. Maybe he has a pot and he's putting, I don't know, eye of mute or whatever. He's got a voodoo doll and it's the children of Israel. Whatever he's doing, he does all that. He's like, okay, I think I'm ready. I'm ready to curse the people. He gets up and these are the words that come out of his mouth. The words that come out of his mouth are, God is not a man that he should lie. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, verse 23. Neither is there any divination against Israel. I mean, think about that. He's a soothsayer who's using enchantments to try to curse the people. He gets up to the high place to curse the people. And what comes out of his mouth is, surely there is no divination against Israel. <laughs> surely there's no enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. God is making him say these words, and God is making a fool out of him. Look at verse 24. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat the prey and drink the blood of the slain. So we see the second oracle. And everything, they say, let's try to change God's mind. Let's do it from over there. And the first words are, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Let's use these enchantments to try to get God to curse these people. Surely there's no divination in Jacob. There's no enchantment for the children of Israel. I mean, God is just making a fool out of them. Look at verse 25. And Balak said unto Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. He said, if you're not going to curse them, at least don't bless them. And we're going to look at tonight what's, what it is that's happening here and why it is that Balaam cannot curse them, but he also is forced to bless them. Look at verse 26. But Balaam answered and said unto Balak, told not I thee, saying, all the Lord that speaketh, that, must, that I must do. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto, look at these words, another place, 
Peradventure, perhaps it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. And remember again this idea that the gods, lowercase g, plural gods, were gods of regions. Look at verse 28. Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor that looketh toward Jeshimon. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. Now this is where chapter 23 ends. And this is where we will pick up the story tonight. We're not done. <laughs> You're like, oh, we're already done. No, no, no. Um, we're going to pick up the story tonight, and we're going to look at the next two oracles, and then we're going to talk about what it is that is happening here and why it is that God is doing this. But what I'd like to do with the rest of our time for this morning, now that we've ended the explanation, I hope it all makes sense to you as we've seen the setup in the first oracle, the second setup in the second oracle, and we've seen the third setup here at the end of chapter uh, 23 that sets us up for tonight for the fourth oracle. I'd like to just make some applications real quickly and some things that we can learn from this uh, story. And maybe you would like to jot these down. The first thing that pops out to me by way of application, we look at the explanation of the first two oracles. Hopefully they make sense to you. Now let me give you three applications from the first two oracles. Applications from the first two oracles. The first application is this. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be manipulated. It's interesting to me that these individuals have attempted here, and maybe you've seen it as we've looked at it, to manipulate God. Look, look at verse 1. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. Look, this would have taken a lot of time. This would have taken a lot of money. Building these altars and bringing these animals up to these high places, these oxen are expensive, rams are expensive. To, to take seven of them to build these altars, to go through the process of killing them and doing all these things, this was a big endeavor. He didn't say, let's do one sacrifice. See, I go, no, no, no. Let's, let's, the, the, the idea that Balaam has here is, let's go big. Build seven altars. Let's sacrifice seven. Think about the size of an ox. I think for... Us who are city dwellers, we often don't uh, realize just how big animals are until we go to the, the state fair or something and see them or go to a zoo. I mean, seven oxen sacrificed, seven rams. Look verse 2. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balak offered on every altar a bullock and a ram. We already saw in verse 24, and chapter 24 and verse 1, that he also... Uh, excuse me, chapter uh, yeah, 24 and verse 1, that he also offered enchantments. Look at it again if you want. Numbers 24, verse 1. And when Balaam saw that, it pleased, that, saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not, as at other times, to seek for enchantments. So we know that he's sacrificing seven oxen, seven rams. He's offering enchantments, whatever that means. They're doing these things. Look at verse 4. Numbers 23, verse 4. And God met Balaam, and he, Balaam, said unto him, God. Notice what Balaam says to God. I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. Look at verse 14. And he brought him into the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah. In verse 14, where after the first oracle, it already didn't work the first time. They said, let's try it again. Let's do it another time. Let's do it somewhere else. Let's do it from another angle. Look at verse 14. And he brought him into the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah. And notice in the new location, built seven altars and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. This is another seven. You understand what I'm saying? Another seven altars, another seven bullocks, another seven sacrifices, bullocks and rams. Look at verse 29. And Balaam said unto Balak, this is the next location. Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And here's what the people are doing. Here's what Balaam and Balak are doing. They have this idea that God can be manipulated. They have this idea that they can give enough sacrifice 
to make up for their wicked intentions. They can give another sacrifice. They want to sin against God. They want to sin against the people of God. They want to bring a curse upon the people of God. God has already told them the people are blessed and I'm not going to curse them. But they said, well, maybe if we give enough money, maybe if we give enough sacrifices, Maybe if we do enough, then we can manipulate God. And listen to me. You can manipulate people. You can bribe people. You can impress people. But you cannot manipulate God. You're not going to perform some spiritual or religious sacrifice to manipulate God into seeing things your way. I realize we have a vision offering coming up, and we're, I'm about to preach on giving and all those things. And, uh, but let me tell you something. If you want to give out of guilt or whatever, I mean, we'll cash your check. But you're not going to manipulate God. When you're living in outright sin, when you're committing adultery, you're committing fornication, you're just doing things, you're, com- you're just, you know, being a drunkard or being on, you say, well, yeah, but I'll just write a check and, and God, God will be happy. No, he won't. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices you sacrifice. God cannot be manipulated. This is the story. You're not going to impress God with how much you give. And look, praise the Lord, our church is not like this. Our church has never been like this. But you better believe there's churches all over this country where people just live in open sin. But the pastor never rebukes them, never corrects them, because they're big donors. They're big givers. Because they, they, because they sacrifice bullocks. You know, the great thing about our church is I don't even know what you guys give I get reports as to the offering, but they're general reports just like total. This is what was given, you know. And to be honest with you, I don't care. Because here's what I know. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the gold in every mine. And God is no respecter of persons. And look, I hope you give, and I hope you start preparing your heart to give in the right way towards the vision offering. But don't give in the vision offering if you think, well, this will, this will make things right with God. No, you getting right with God will make things right with God. You getting on God's agenda, you getting on God's plan, you getting right with God, you confessing your sin and repenting and doing what God wants, that's what will get you right with God. Not seven bullocks while I'm trying to sin against the God of the universe. So one thing we learned from the story is this, and I think it's something we should all remember, that God cannot be manipulated. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but I'm a soul winner. Well, I, I'm happy you're a soul winner. I hope you'll be a soul winner. I want all of us to be a soul winner. But don't get this idea that we can manipulate God, that we can sacrifice and give or, or, or serve or do something, and that will make up, and then God will be happy. No, God will be happy when you follow his word. So we see in the story, first of all, that God cannot be manipulated. But I'd like you to notice, secondly, Another application I see in this story. Not only can, do we see that God cannot be manipulated, but we see that God has not miscalculated. Notice again, we already kind of talked about it, but look at verse 13. And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place, from whence thou mayest see them. Thou shalt see but the utmost part of them, and shalt not see them all, and curse me them from thence. They said, let's, let's, let's try this again. Let's try this from another location. Look at verse 27. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. This is after the second time that God is thinking a fool out of them. They said, I will bring thee unto another place, perhaps, peradventure, it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. You know what we see here is that they're saying, maybe God miscalculated. Maybe God made a mistake. Maybe God just doesn't understand. Let's just look at it from another angle. Let's go somewhere else. Okay, maybe you can curse all of them, but maybe you can curse some of them. You know what's interesting to me is that this is what people often do when they want to sin against God. They'll come to my office and they'll say, I'd like to divorce my spouse. What do you think about that? I think you're an idiot. Well, they're a moron. Yeah, but you're the moron that married them. And by the way, I told you not to marry them, and I told you this would happen, and now you got to stay with it. (laughs) This is my life, you know, my therapy. And and, and people, you know, what 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 does God say about it? Hey, God's against divorce. 
God's not for divorce. But you know what people often do? Well, what if we look at it from a different angle? Well, what if that verse doesn't actually say that? Well, what if I just ask another pastor? What if I just get advice from somebody else? What if I go to another place, look at it from another angle? What, what, could, could I possibly change the mind of God? And the answer is no. We need to understand that God cannot be manipulated and God has not miscalculated. God has said what he said and we need to just align ourselves to him. Stop trying to look at it. Well, maybe if I look at it this way, and maybe if I look at it that way, and maybe if I look at it from this angle, and this guy on YouTube said, and this other preacher said, and in the Greek they say, you don't speak Greek, shut up. <laughs> well, in the Greek, you don't speak Greek. You don't even read the English Bible. You're going to tell me something about the Greek? God has not miscalculated. God, let me put it the way God said it to Balaam. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Look, we need to stop trying to get, trying to change, trying to change the will of God and change the view of God. Stop trying to change what God has said and start changing ourselves to align ourselves with the God that cannot be manipulated and with the God that is not miscalculated. What we learn from the story is that, look, I don't care how many, God, I don't care how many oxen you sacrifice, I will not be manipulated. I don't care if you change angles and change positions, if you do it from a different place and you look, you look at it from another angle. And well, what if we look, saw? God says, I have not miscalculated, I have not misspoken, I've already said what I said. We see that God cannot be manipulated, and God is not miscalculated. And look, let me just say this: when you're seeking the will of God for your life, stop, stop, if you have to spin God, if you have to like, oh, well, God, here's why, and justify it to God, you're already wrong. People have to, well, I'm going to move to this location. Is there a good church there? Well, there's not a good church, but, but I think that, no, you're an idiot. Jesus died for the church. He gave himself for the church. The will of God for your life is not a job and not a location. It's to be in church. God is not miscalculated. God cannot be manipulated. Just align yourself to God. That's what God wants. <clears throat> or be Balaam and let God make a fool out of you. Well, maybe we can change his mind. I think we can change his mind. Ah, I'm going to curse him. Ah, God is not a man that he should lie. Well, maybe I can use these enchantments and use divination to put a curse upon God. Ah, enchantments don't work with the Jacob. I mean, he just makes a fool out of Balaam. And he'll make a fool out of you when you and I get this idea that God can be manipulated and that God somehow has miscalculated and God just doesn't understand. And if God just heard my reasoning, if he just saw it from my angle, if he just saw it the way I see things, it doesn't matter how you see things. You know what the Bible says? There is a way which seemeth right unto a man and the end thereof are the ways of death. So we see that God cannot be manipulated. We see that God has not miscalculated. Let me give you a third one this morning. We'll finish up. Go to Deuteronomy 23 if you would. You're there in Numbers. Just go past Deuteronomy. If you're married, that's God's will for your life. If you're in a Bible-believing church that preaches the King James Bible, is right on salvation, teaches you to go soul winning, teaching the word, that's God's will for your life. Stop trying to figure out how you can get away with. Just get on board with God. God cannot be manipulated. God has not miscalculated. Here's number three. God should not be misappropriated. What do you mean by that? Well, misappropriate means to use incorrectly or to use in an unintended way, to use in an inappropriate way. And you know, what these people are trying to do, what Balaam and Balak are trying to do is to use God as a weapon against the children of Israel. And they learn this lesson, and we can learn this lesson as well, that God should not and God cannot be misappropriated. Look at Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3, the Bible says this, the Ammonite or the Moabite, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. 
Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Here's why, verse 4. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pethor, of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Notice how much real estate Balaam gets in the Bible. He's brought up a lot. God says, I'm going to curse the Ammonite and the Moabite because they met you not with bread and with water in the way, and because they hired against you, they hired Balaam to curse you. Verse 5, Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God, notice these words, turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loveth thee. They meant it for evil. Here's how Joseph would say. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They tried to curse, but God stole the words, took the words out of their mouth, and turned them into a blessing, made a fool out of them, and put a blessing upon the people of God. Why? Because the Lord thy God loveth thee. Go to Isaiah, if you would, chapter 54, just real quickly. You go from the center of the Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. You know what I find Christians oftentimes when they're, manipu- when they're attempting to manipulate God, when they're hoping that God has miscalculated? Oftentimes they'll take the Bible and they'll try to misappropriate it. They'll try to use the Bible as a weapon against others. They'll try to use God as a weapon against others. I grow tired of seeing supposed independent fundamental Baptist young men who, in my opinion, are borderline just mistreating their wives and, 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 and I don't even want to use the word abusing because I don't, I don't think there's physical abusement. I've seen husbands take the Bible and beat their wives over it, over their head with it, not literally. And, well, the Bible says you're supposed to submit. Well, the Bible also says that you're supposed to sacrifice and love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And, and, and listen to me, I, I'm not for, I'm, we're not Muslims. I'm not for this idea that, like, well, the man's better than the woman and she better walk seven feet away from behind me. And she, Look, submission doesn't mean you can't speak. You understand that? I'm telling you, independent, formal, Baptist, pastor, Roger Jimenez, hate preacher, whatever you want to call me, is telling you submission doesn't mean silence. That's weird. That's Islam. Go worship Muhammad. You say, well, what does submission mean? It means the right attitude. It means reverence. It means when you speak, ladies, you ought to speak with respect and with the right attitude towards your husband. It doesn't mean silence. In fact, the Bible says that the reason that God gave you a wife was to be a helpmeet. And some of you idiots would be smarter to stop shutting down your wives and start actually listening to them. I'm like, I'm all for submission and I'm all for leadership. I'm all for all those things. If the Bible says that I'm for it. But you know what I'm not for? I'm not for us taking the Bible and trying to put a curse upon people that God has not cursed. And try to misappropriate it and use it as some sort of a tool and some sort of a weapon against people. Look, we ought never use the Bible as a weapon against other people. Now, if they're the enemies of God, then let the word of God fight them. And we ought to preach the word. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where we misapply, misappropriate, take verses out of context to try to make some point that makes us better than other people. You're wicked as hell. God's not for you. God's not for that. You know what Balaam learned? You know what Balak learned? That God cannot be misappropriated. Let me just end on this encouraging thought. We should not use the Bible misappropriately to attack, especially the people of God. But let me just say this. When others attack us unjustly, when others use the Bible and misappropriate and misapply and take out of context to try to attack us, to try to hurt us, to try to uh, uh, go against us. Just remember that God cannot be manipulated. God has not miscalculated and God cannot be misappropriated. He'll turn that curse into a blessing.
Hey, Pastor Menace, you, you preach the way you do. You got all these people out there that hate you. Aren't you afraid? So there's some witch doctor out there with some voodoo doll that says, Pastor Jimenez. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a little shorter. It's brown. <laughs> very nice looking doll, though. Very nice. And they're just, yeah. Aren't you afraid of that? No, you know what? I just, God will just turn that curse into a blessing. You're, they're not going to use God and God's power against the people of God. God's in control. This verse kind of puts it all together. Isaiah 54, 17. Look at it. Isaiah 54, 17. Isaiah 54, 17. The Bible says this. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Notice it. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And the righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. You know what we learn in this chapter, Numbers 24? We learn that bad people with bad intentions, with lots of resources, can come and will come against the people of God. But praise be to God that God cannot be manipulated. No matter how famous you are, no matter how much influence you have, no matter how much weight you have to throw around, how much money you have, God's not impressed with that. He's no respecter of persons. God is not miscalculated. Just look, just... If the Bible says it, just believe it, just do it. Stop trying to figure out how you can find the loophole, and I'm the loophole, and if we look at it from this angle, and if we look at it in this way, and if, you, if God just heard my story, and praise God that God cannot be misappropriated. No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. They stood up there to curse the people of God, but God turned the curse into a blessing. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you. We thank you for these stories, just the encouragement they are to us. Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to never be the people who try to use a Bible verse to attack and hurt other children of God. Help us to always be fair and just and kind and loving. Lord, thank you for these lessons we can learn. Praise the Lord that we serve a God that is no respecter of persons. He will not be manipulated. He is not miscalculated. And he won't be misappropriated. We love you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn these lessons, apply them to our lives. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to, encourage, just want to remind you a couple of things and encourage you on a couple of things. First of all, I want to encourage you to be back tonight, 6 p.m.